So in the text that Mark read for us, Moses asked God a question. He said, please, show me your glory. And that is without a doubt the most audacious, the most bold, that is borderline the most reckless question that anybody has ever asked of God. Moses said, God, I want to see the complete, I want to see the the combined attributes of you. I want to see all of it right now. Would you show it to me? Moses, do you know what happens to people who ask for less? Do you know what happens to people who see less, who just see one of God's attributes or just a sliver of God's character displayed? Just, just think of Lot's wife in Genesis 19 as they're fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife looks back and she just sees the justice of God being poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah and she turns into a pillar of salt. Think of a man named Uzzah, 2 Samuel 6. He was helping to transport the Ark of the Covenant, the box where God's presence resided with his people. And so there were some oxen carrying the, the Ark of the Covenant and one of the oxen slipped and so just... Out of good intentions, Uzzah just stuck his hand out just to steady the ark so that it wouldn't fall. And when he came into the unadulterated, holy presence of God, he dropped dead. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he is thrust into the throne room of heaven. And he sees all the hosts of heaven crying out together, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And what did Isaiah say? Oh, woe is me. I am undone. Almost down to a molecular level, his DNA was being ripped apart because he did not belong in the presence of God. So Moses, are you sure? Are you sure this is really what you want? I love Charles Spurgeon's meditation on Moses' question. Bears repeating at length. Spurgeon said, when Moses offers this petition of, Lord, show me your glory, he stands alone. A giant among giants, a colossus, even in those days of mighty men. His request surpasses that of any other man. Among the lofty peaks and summits of man's prayers that rise like mountains to the skies, this is the culminating point. This is the highest elevation that faith ever gained. It is the loftiest place to which the great ambition of faith could climb. It is the topmost pillar of all the towering structures that confidence ever piled. I am astonished that Moses himself should have been bold enough to supplicate so wondrous a favor. Surely after he uttered his desire, his bones must have trembled, his blood must have curdled in his veins, and his hair must have stood on end. And shockingly to me, and maybe even shockingly to Moses, God said, okay, I'll show you my glory. Let's do this. And so in verse 19, we see how God answered this request. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
So God answered Moses' request with a three-part answer. Showed him his goodness, showed him his name or his character, and he showed Moses his graciousness. So he started out with his goodness. And he didn't show Moses some of his goodness or just a little bit of his goodness. It says that all of his goodness was shown. Just this week, I tried to imagine, okay, what, what, would, what are just some of the ways that God is good to us? Well, let's start with creation. So God spoke, and everything came into existence. And just because God is good, he made it beautiful. It is pleasing to look at everything. And God wanted us to be able to enjoy it because he's good, so he gave us eyes. Our eyes might be the most complicated uh, organ system in all the universe, but God went to the lengths to give us eyes just so that we could see everything that he had made. He could have created us in a world that was dark and void and we never would have had eyes and never would have known the difference. But just because he's good, God made those mountains and he made those trees which are green all year round and he gave us snow so that we can wake up and have a nice cup of morning coffee. And he gave us coffee, which tastes great. (laughs) And you can just sit on your couch in the morning and you can look at the beautiful snow. And then God gave us dogs. I don't know about you, my dog is worthless. (laughs) He sleeps for 23 hours a day and does nothing but take, take, take. But he's small and he's cute and he's furry. He contributes nothing to society. But God made him just because he's cute. And he wanted us to have cute animals to enjoy our morning coffee with. Just because he's good. Just because he wants to give us good things. Because he is a good father who wants to do good things for his children. Beyond God's general revelation, nature, let's just keep going and think of how precious his specific revelation is to us. It's scripture. Just consider what this is. Like th- this is God's word. The same voice that spoke everything into existence, that same voice spoke, and this is the result. Th- this is equally as amazing as creation. It tells us about God. It tells us about ourselves. It tells us about the the cosmic story that God is writing. God breathed, and this is the result. We can know what God said. He is communicating to us through his word. Then God gave us his church. He didn't leave us out on an island to try and, you know, read his word and figure life out all on our own. He gave us one another. So that we can encourage each other and strengthen one another and press one another on. Just because he knows that we're not going to be able to do it alone. So he's good to us in giving us one another. Just think about prayer. How good is God that we can actually talk to him? Okay, God's a busy guy. He is currently upholding Mars. He is speaking to 7.2 billion hearts and lungs around the world thousands of times a day saying to each and every one of them, beat again or breathe again. He's doing all of that and yet you can still have an audience with God. Because he's good. 
because he wants to spend time with his children. He wants to be near to them. He wants to be close to them. And we could go on for an eternity dwelling on God's goodness. I think that's probably most of what we will do in eternity. It's just reveling in the goodness of God and discovering new goodnesses that we don't even know about right now. I just love that when Moses asked to see God's glory, the very first thing that God wants to show is his goodness. I think that tells us a lot about what kind of God we serve. So God starts out strong. He compresses his infinite depth and breadth and beauty of all of his goodness so that Moses could see it. And then he keeps going. He says, And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So up to this point, God has at least spoken his name to Moses. Back in Exodus 3, at the burning bush, God said his name, Yahweh. I am Yahweh, meaning I am who I am. But here in Exodus 34, God is going to give a full definition and explanation of what his name means. So like Exodus 3, Yahweh is the Cliff Notes version. Exodus 34 is the, the, the sermon, God expounding on what his name means. So Exodus 34, 6 and 7, this is how God defines and describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands or thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. A few weeks ago, I told you all about one of my Old Testament professors, Dr. House, and Quite frankly, I am shocked that by the end of my time with Dr. House that he had not gone around to each and every one of his students and tattooed Exodus 34, 6 and 7 across every single one of our heads. I actually count that as one of God's goodnesses to me, that he did not let Dr. House do that. And the reason that Dr. House got so passionate about Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is because the rest of Scripture is so passionate about these verses. We said a few weeks ago that the Exodus is the most referenced uh, event in the Bible, and that's true. Biblical authors, they will throw out an allusion or a reference to Exodus like it's Halloween candy. Just here, talk about the Exodus. But when the biblical authors wanted to get a word-for-word definition, when when they didn't want to settle for allusions or references, when they wanted a copy-paste definition of who God is and what God is like, Exodus 34 is where they go more than anywhere else. You cannot read Numbers or Deuteronomy, 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, or Nahum without coming across these words. And why not? Why shouldn't the Bible love to talk about these attributes of God? Like, How wonderful is it that this is what our God is like? God's merciful. He's not this far-off, pie-in-the-sky kind of God who doesn't care about what's happening to his people. He's not this grumpy old man who's just looking down and frowning on us all the time. God's tender and kind and warm and welcoming. He is gracious to us. He's merciful. 
He doesn't treat us how we deserve. He doesn't do to us what he would have every right to do. God's slow to anger. Literally, that's translated as God is long of nose. It's actually just an idiom from that time, meaning that God is patient. Kind of like how we would say that God has a long, or that we have a long fuse, just God has a long nose. Kind of reminds me of like that, um, I want to be careful because I know we have quite a few older people in the room, but anybody, anybody have that, that grandfather who just has a really big nose? Okay, yeah. So, and this grandfather, he's old enough, he's wise enough, he's patient enough at this point of his life. He, he really doesn't get angry very much. He just sees something that he doesn't like and he just... It's all about the nose. That's what God is like. He is that kind, loving patient, grandfatherly type who is very, very slow to anger. He is long of nose. So we have a lot of kids in the room, and so listening to a sermon every week is, can be hard work. And so what we encourage kids to do is to draw what they hear, draw the story that we're talking about. And so if any of you are drawing today, just give God a, a really big nose. I think that'd be really funny. Beyond that, God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He doesn't have some love. He doesn't have some faithfulness. It's not a limited supply. If you messed up yesterday, that's okay. You can come to God today, and he will have new mercies for you every single time. We'll stop there as we are going through God's self-description of himself, but uh, I do want you to keep an eye on verse 7. We're going to come back and end with that. There's just a little bit of a tension, something that when you first read it, say, okay, something doesn't feel right, so just keep an eye on that. But for now, we are going to conclude how, how God, his panorama of glory. Back in Exodus 33, and God closes his display of his glory by showing Moses his graciousness. It says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so God concluded the display of his glory by showing Moses his sovereign and electing grace. Now here at Redemption Parker, we would consider ourselves to be a reformed church. And so we say reformed with a little r. And so I know we have a lot of people coming from a Presbyterian church who might take a little umbrage with the fact that we would call ourselves Reformed. That's fine. We can still get along. But we would consider ourselves little r Reformed. And by that, we mean that we embrace the doctrines of the Reformation. So Reformation Reformed. And so this last Thursday was Halloween, October 31st. And while most people are celebrating Halloween, I'm getting really excited because that is also Reformation Day. October 31st, 1519, is when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and that is when he sparked the Reformation. And the Reformation is about many things. I don't want to boil it down and say it's about this one thing. It was about government. It was about economics. It was about theology. It, was, it, was about, it changed the world. But one of the core doctrines of the Reformation is the unmerited, undeserved, freely given, electing grace of God. 
So if you've been with RP for uh, any length of time, uh, we've gone through some really tough passages that wrestle with God's sovereign choice and and being sovereign over salvation. We've looked at John 6 and Acts 9 and and different parts of Romans. And and we've more or less explained or defended our, our position and our belief in that. But notice in our passage here that that is not what is happening. God is not explaining himself. He is not defending himself. Rather, he is just putting his sovereign grace on display to display his glory and to be a a reason, a cause for our worshiping of him. And so, of course, like it, it can be a tough thing to wrap your mind around. And so if you have any questions or doubts or concerns, just talk with me or any other one of the pastors here. We would love to be able to walk you through that. But for now, like Moses, all I want us to do is to simply bask in the glory that is God's sovereign grace. Because in verse 19, God is the initiator when it comes to grace and mercy. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's not like God looked at me and said, I need that guy on my team. He's got a good thing going. He didn't see a little spark of life or a little spark of faith and say, okay, like there's some raw material, but I I can work with this. Like he can contribute 10% and I can come the other 90. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. My heart was cold towards the things of God. I hated God. If, if you're a Christian, you, you did too. doesn't matter if you grew up going to church and saying all the right things. Like If you're like me, all your southern Christianity, all your southern nominalism, you are still just a rotting corpse at the bottom of the ocean. But God, based on nothing that I have to offer, looked at me and put his affection on me, and he reached down to the bottom of the ocean, and he breathed life into me. I hear a lot of people say that election isn't fair. And I actually agree with that. You want to know what's fair? It's for you to still be dead, rotting at the bottom of the ocean. That's what you deserved for your sin standing before a holy God. You don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. And so if you have had your eyes open to behold the beauty of Christ and just praise him for it. If you want to see the glory of God, just meditate on your own salvation. You might not think, I I wasn't that bad. You were dead. Circumstances are just window dressing. God has saved you and put his affection on you just because he loves you. And that is a panorama of glory that will take an eternity to set in. So God displays his glory to Moses. And then right after that, in verse 20, we run into something. We run into a but. A good friend of mine would say, that is a Sir Mix-a-Lot but. It's a big but. (laughs) There we go, okay. God said, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So Moses asked a big question. He's probably speaking above his head. He didn't quite realize what he was asking for. And God was gracious to answer the question, but Moses maybe didn't know it, but he was asking for that which would obliterate him. If God answered the question the way Moses fully wanted, that's the end of Moses. He's just, he's gone. And so what God did, he says, I'm going to answer your request. I will show you my glory. But the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to put you in a cleft in a rock. So you're just going to kind of be able to burrow yourself back in the rock so it's covering your back and covering some of your periphery. And I'm going to put my hand over you so you can just see a sliver of my back as I pass by. What I want us to see from this is that God's concealment is just as gracious as his manifestation. To protect Moses from God, God provided a cleft in the rock. It would be a true view of God, but it would be a tempered view. There is as much grace in God's concealment as there are in his revelations. Another way to say that would be to say that sometimes what God does not reveal, say sometimes what is not in the Bible, is just as important as what is in the Bible. God withheld a revelation of himself from Moses to protect Moses. It was for Moses' own good. Have you ever been reading your Bible and just almost been frustrated with God? Like, God, I, I wish I knew about this. Or why haven't you told us more about that? Like, I, I, I want to know more. Maybe it's... Okay, God, just how old is the earth? Is it old? Is it young? Like, just, just tell us clearly. Or God, if you knew that, you know, we were going to eat of the fruit and we were going to fall, why, why have the, the tree there in the first place? Or God, what will our resurrection bodies be like? Just we, we have all these questions that we get clues and we get hints of, but God just hasn't made it abundantly clear. And I do want to encourage us to be more inquisitive students of God's word. I do want us to do the hard work of trying to find out what God has said. But there does come a point where we just have to confess that God is God. That we are not. And we trust that whatever God chooses to withhold from us, that withholding is actually for our good. Reminds me of what Paul wrote at the end of Romans 11. We've just written most of Romans, which is the most dense, the most nuanced, the most thorough systematic theology that anybody has ever written. Paul went higher on the mountain of God's truth than any man or woman has ever gone. And here's what he had to say at the end of it. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. After 
searching as much of God's truth as he could, Paul basically said, oh God, my brain hurts. Okay, God, you, you are big and wonderful and majestic and glorious and wise and powerful and my, my, my brain hurts. I can't comprehend all of it. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? I just, I can't wrap my mind around it, and that's okay. Because you are God, and you are bigger and stronger and wiser than me. Love what St. Augustine said about Paul in this moment. He said, Paul found rest for his soul because he found wonder. Paul found rest for his soul and his hurting brain. Because he was able to say, I can't go any higher. Paul went as far as God's revelation allowed him to go, and then he humbly bowed out. I think that we should learn from God's concealment of himself from Moses that God will reveal as much of himself to us as we need for salvation and for godly living, and that whatever information he withholds from us is for our good. So to conclude our time, I want to return to the end of God proclaiming his name to Moses back in Exodus 34. This is God revealing his character to Moses. And the reason why I wanted to wait to end here is because there is a huge tension going on in verse 7. If you read ahead, maybe you've caught on to it and are wondering what it is. Exodus 34, verse 7, we read that God keeps steadfast love for thousands... Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What? Whoa, God, you forgive sin and transgression and iniquity, but you will by no means clear the guilty. How does that work, God? Which one are you? Are you loving and kind and forgiving? Or are you just? How do we reconcile both of these? Now, hopefully, if you've been coming to Redemption Parker for a while, you should be able to shout the answer back to me. Now, we are a predominantly white church, and I realize that white people take a little time to get warmed up at church. So I'm telling you, I'm getting, we're getting there. Let's get warmed up. I'm about to ask you a question, and I want to hear a response, okay? Where do we go to reconcile God's love with his justice? Jesus. Jesus, we go to the cross. Paul was wrestling with this tension. Like, God, are, are you loving or are you just? He was wrestling with this in Romans 3. And Paul said, because Christ died on the cross, God is both the just and the justifier. God is both the just and the justifier. So at the cross, Jesus poured out his wrath on Jesus. He didn't just wink at sin. He didn't just slide it under the rug and say it's not that big of a deal. When you want to see how seriously God takes sin, you look at the cross. God is very just. He does not let anything slide. So in pouring out his justice on Jesus, God is still just. And for those who are in Christ, for those who put their faith in him, repent of their sins, and believe in him... The justice that they deserved is already poured out on Jesus. 
So their sin has already been taken care of. They are now considered right and holy and justified in the sight of God. God is the one doing the justifying. He is both just and the justifier. The cross is where God's mercy and his justice meet. The cross is where Exodus 34, 6, and 7 are pointing to. I think we could even go back to Exodus 33 and see a foreshadowing of the cross. I want to be a little careful here. I realize that in doing the framework series of showing how the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in Jesus, we are uh, teaching everyone how to uh, read and interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And what I don't want to do is create reckless interpreters of Scripture who get carried away with the framework series and can just point to any verse in the Old Testament and try and find Jesus under every rock. But I do think that we can be faithful to how Scripture instructs us to interpret itself and narrow our Christological lens just a little, little more on Exodus 33 and see a foreshadowing of the cross. We just talked about how as much as God revealed to Moses, God also concealed Moses. Meaning God was protecting Moses from God. Moses was saved by God from God. Likewise, at the cross, we are saved by God from God. At the cross, God is protecting us from himself and from his justice. What the cleft in the rock was for Moses, the cross is for us. At the cross, we are hidden in the rock who is Christ, and he takes on the wrath and the justice of God so that we can enjoy the goodness and the kindness of God. Jesus is our rock. If you are hidden in him, God's justice has already been poured out on him. Your sins have been atoned for. They have been taken away and carried off so that they can never be seen again. So look to Jesus. Look to the rock. Look to the one who can save you from God's justice. Find yourself in him. Repent and believe and put your faith in him so that you can then enjoy the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God. Towards that end, let me pray for us. God, how unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable are your ways. You are the just and the justifier and we have no right on our own to be able to speak with you. And so we are just humbled by your grace and your mercy that you show us in Jesus. Pray that by your spirit you would open our eyes, soften our hearts so that we can see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Would you call people to yourself? Pray all these things for your glory. Amen.